Thanks for joining us today on the Port City Church Podcast. With multiple campuses existing within Southeastern North Carolina, our mission is to be helpful and hopeful as we reach people and help them walk with God. To learn more about the heart behind our church, we encourage you to visit us at portcity.church. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and he believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to the place where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. He is risen. Right, there we go. Some of you know. Uh, If you're new to Port City, I want to... uh, Welcome, you know, we have people kind of gathered all over the place. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm a very formal individual, as you can, uh, can tell. Um, it's, a, it's an honor to uh, be able to uh, share Easter together. I'm excited about uh, what we're going to be talking about today. I hope that you will um, be as well. The passage that we just heard is from the Gospel of John. Uh, John was a, a disciple of Jesus. It's the encounter, the first encounter that we have of a human being with the resurrected Christ. 
with an encounter with him. And you can imagine this, if you will. You see what happens as Mary uh, goes to the tomb. Jesus is not there. She turns and she sees someone. She thinks it's the landscaper, the gardener. Uh, doesn't recognize him for obvious reasons, right? Because when someone's dead, you don't expect to see them again. And so she turns around and she sees him and says, can you tell me, you know, maybe you saw something. Can you let me know what was going on? And Jesus calls her by name. He calls her by name. And at that moment, she hears his voice, recognizes him. And I think, imagine she kind of falls at his feet. She grabs onto him and she says, you know, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's you. Um, and I think in her mind, she's thinking now, you know, things can go back to the way that they were. We can finish what you started. We can kind of make this movement happen. It's going to be a thing. Mary Magdalene was very close to Jesus. Uh, Mary Magdalene was probably a follower of his the whole time. People believe that she was uh, probably from a, a wealthy family, that she perhaps actually helped fund uh, some of Jesus's uh, endeavors and ministries. Um, she was with him as an eyewitness at the crucifixion. She was with him in all four Gospels, as mentioned, as an eyewitness of the resurrection, specifically by name. Uh, Mary is known in the early church as the apostle to the apostles. It's no small note that the first person commissioned to go and share the news of Jesus' resurrection was a woman. So all this is beginning to unfold. And so Mary grabs onto her, I mean, onto Jesus, thinking that now we can get on with the way things are supposed to be. And you notice what Jesus said to her? He says, don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. It's kind of an odd thing to say. Don't, don't stay here. And I think what he's saying, and I think what we need to kind of take stock of today, is he said to her, Mary, don't hold on to me. Things will never again be the way that they were. It's a pivotal moment. It's, it's something has now shifted forever. And a lot of us, you know what this is like. There are things in your life that have happened. And there are places in parts of your life where something happened and those things happened and your life would never again be the way that it was. Sometimes it was a great thing and sometimes it wasn't such a great thing. And there are these moments that happened to us like this. And I want to look at this and really explore what is it that the gospel means? What is it that the resurrection of Jesus means to us in those moments? And what is it that God has for us because of what he's done um, in the resurrection? If you've been around Port City Community Church for any length of time, you know that I'm a pretty, uh, not only am I a formal guy, I'm a pretty uh, simple guy. And so I've, about 18 years ago, um, I wrote down these three convictions that I have, trying to understand um, how I think about the world around me. And the first one, it just starts with the idea of creation. And it just simply says, if God created life, then he alone gets to define it. That whoever creates something, whoever originates something, has the power and the right and responsibility to define it. So that was kind of thing one. And I would just start, God, if you've made this, if you've created this, what do you say about it? How do you define this? And am I willing uh, to come underneath what you have said? You created me. Um, can I trust you uh, with defining me, with who I am? A second uh, thing that kind of emerged from this sort of exploration was I realized that everybody, myself included, had these deep longings and drives. Some of them were really helpful and healthy, and others of them were disastrous. You know what I'm talking about? There were things that I wanted so badly, things that I wished would be a particular way, things that drove me, things that moved me, and all of you have them as well. Just sort of a newsflash. You know that you can want wrong things. Did you know that? You can wake up in the morning and want something so badly, and what you want is so wrong, and you know it's wrong, and you still want it, right? We know this. 
So I began to wrestle with this. So if, what is wrong if I want wrong things? What is it I'm actually looking for? And what I realized is that every longing at its core is a longing for life. We all want this life. Uh, and then I wrote down this other thing and I began to explore that what it is that you are longing for and what you're pursuing depends on how you define what it is that drives you. And everyone in here has something that drives you and moves you and motivates you and pushes you. And the reason it does is because of something that you believe about it. Something that you believe about it. You think that a better career will be life. A better marriage will be life. Having kids will be life. A better job will be life. More money will be life. You think that whatever, you know, golf is life. Surfing, whatever it is, you have all this idea. Some, something, and you believe it. And so it is organizing, it is animating, it is driving everything that you do. And for some of you, this blank changes all the time. So you're constantly from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And so your life feels scattered, and it feels incomplete, and it feels whole, and there's something way worse that's going on. We begin to really understand what the gospel is and what it was. What I wrote down in my journal 18 years ago, and it came from a little section in Colossians chapter 3, where it says, uh, Paul writes, I want you to set your minds on the things that are above, in the, in the heavenlies, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And which felt kind of, I remember reading this first when I was probably in my uh, high school and college days. And trying to think about this and going, that sounds kind of detached. And it sounds kind of, you know, irrelevant. I'm supposed to set my mind on the heavenlies where the streets are gold and they're singing Amazing Grace for 10,000 years. This doesn't sound helpful, nor does it sound really that hopeful, if I'm really honest. So I began to think about this. And then it goes on and it says in there, as I begin to look at this, it says that our lives are hidden with Christ, or in Christ, with God, that there's this reunion. And then it says that when Christ returns, and there's this little comma, when Christ, who is our life, returns, we will finally be absorbed or we will be returned to what we have been hoping and wanting all along. So I just sat down in my journal and I wrote this. When Christ, who is our life, and let me tell you, I did not understand it. I did not understand it. 18 years ago, I did not understand. But you know what I decided to do? I said, I'm going to believe it. I'm going to start to pursue it. I'm going to start to ask. I'm going to start to seek. 18 years later, I still don't fully understand it, but I understand it a whole lot more than I did when I began. This is how belief works. A lot of you come to church, you come back to church at Easter, you've been wrestling with faith for a long time, and you, you, you think that if you just had more evidence, if someone finally gave the right convincing argument, then belief would be easy to you. Then somehow it would all make perfect sense, and belief would come easily, and it would come naturally. That is not how faith, that is not how belief works. That is not how this works. There are things, and the reality is, as you know, this because you believe things that you're chasing already. And you don't understand them all. And you're trying to understand them. It, it, it never works like this. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want for you, I want for you to come in. I want you, you know, I, as I thought about this, what is, what is the resurrection really? Like, was it just like the ultimate flex? Like, did Jesus just come back from the dead to prove that he was God? It was like a cool trick. Watch this. Boom. And there's memes like this. People have taught this from the Bible. 
And is there something that the resurrection actually does to us? Is there something to this statement that Christ is life? This is a good message in church, right? I say Christ is life. Everybody here would go, yes, amen. If you go in and you tell your boss, he says, hey, why don't you get this project done? You say, well, you know, Christ is life. Not gonna appreciate it so much. So I'm not talking about some pie in the sky, trite way of thinking. I'm thinking it's trying to, to understand something that actually makes a difference and shapes what we do here in this world, what you do tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And for a lot of us, we've grown up with this view of the gospel of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection with this very limited story. And I just want you to consider what is the story that you know about him? What's the story you know about him? I'm convinced, or maybe this is an assumption that too many people, too many of us assume that the gospel the birth and the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was designed to get you to heaven when you die. And that is not a compelling enough message to demand from you what is required to walk by faith, to experience the kind of life that God, that Jesus has made available to us. So that's what I want for us to explore. Um, today, a lot of you have heard the gospel, some version of this. You're born, I was born on 10, 1470. And then you live, and at some point over here, you die. I'm not gonna put a date there, because <laughs> hopefully it's a while from now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have what? Everlasting life, eternal life, some version of that. And so most of us think that it happens out here. And there are sort of two options that happens to you out there. Because if you believe in him, you shall not what? Perish, but you shall have, meaning you will do what? You'll go to heaven and there'll be some pearly gates. And there's a ticket booth over there. And Peter is in there at the pearly gates to see if you have the ticket. I, we don't say it like this, but that's what it looks like in our heads. So everybody here knows this. And if you don't have the ticket, you end up in this eternal subterranean torture chamber where you're gonna fry and burn forever called hell. And this is the story that most of us have grown up with. And one of the great things about being born in 1970 is that you entered your teenage years about 1983, which gave you access to the most glorious decade <laughs> known to mankind, okay? So when I was, I turned 16 in 1986 and my parents bought me for my first car a 1986 vet. And most of you think, yes, when in actuality, what I got was this. <laughs> this is a 1986 Chevette, not to be confused with the Corvette. This is what I drove through high school, college. I was very cool back then. But a lot of us have ended up thinking that the gospel is about a choice between a Corvette and a Chevette, between heaven and between hell, right? <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. How hard of a decision is this for you? 
Like this is a no brainer. Don't wanna drive this, perfect, give me this all day long. What do I have to do, what do I have to believe, what do I have to say, give me this all day long. That's how a lot of us have ended up believing in this kind of God and this kind of gospel that isn't, doesn't compel you to pursue or to seek or to know. It just pursues you, it just, it just kind of compels you to try and do better and make promises about what you will or won't do because you feel guilty enough or not guilty enough. I'm telling you, it is not sustainable, nor are you going to experience what Jesus actually came to do. I don't know if you realize this or not, but this, this narrative is not in your Bible. It's not in your Bible. I've been reading this for a long time. I've been diligently trying to say, God, what is the gospel? What is the message for a long time? Trying to process this as carefully and as thoughtfully and as authentically as I can. I'm responsible, I get it, for, for leading a church. I do not want to miss, I wanna help people walk with God. But I do not want you walking away and thinking that the best God can do is offer you a choice between a, a Chevette and a Corvette. Because he's come to give you so much more than that. This is deeper, it is more pervasive than you know, than you or I know. And you know how you're gonna find this out? Because I'm gonna give you a really compelling, convincing argument that will finally convince you once and for all. Nope. You're gonna to have to believe something. You're gonna to have to believe something, to trust something. What Jesus talks about, and it's, it's unbelievable how the scriptures are put together for us. John, the gospel that we just read from, talks about the story of Mary, Mary Magdalene. Uh, John was writing this gospel, or at least it was completed about 40 to 50 years uh, probably about 40 years after uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection and Jesus ascended. So John is writing this as an older man. I mean, just think about this. I used to think that the Bible was written like they're live tweeting stuff, like, oh, this happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. And they comes, he's putting this together. He, John is like, like seeking and looking and trying to go, I wanna make sure I wanna write everything down. And the reason he says at the very end of his gospel, he says, I wanna write all this down and record it so that you'll believe that Jesus was who he says he was. That's the specific reason that it reaches us today. And he begins his gospel with these three words. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning. Does that sound familiar to you? Of course it does, do you know why? Because it's the first three words in your Bible. John knew this was the first three words in the Hebrew Bible. He grew up in the tradition, he knew the Hebrew scriptures. What he was doing is he was riffing off of the poem that the Bible opens with when it talks about the creation of the, the earth. I used to be bothered that people would talk about the creation poem being a poem. I'm like, you don't take the word of God seriously. The creation poem is a poem. In Hebrew, it has rhyme and meter and all the things that make it poetry. And it's beautiful poetry to let us in on who God is and what he is doing and why he is doing it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, it was void, and the Spirit of God brooded over this, hovered over. It was calling into existence things. And out of that, 
It says that he formed, he said, let there be light. And he separated the light from the darkness. And he separated the waters above from the waters below. And he separated the waters to the right and the waters to the left and the land emerged. It's this beautiful picture that, that God is, that, that we are being let in on and John is riffing off of. In John chapter one, where he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and he was with God in the beginning. And nothing that was made came into being without going through him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld the fullness of the father, full of grace and full of truth. He came into his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who would receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, the way in which we were intended from the very beginning. This is the way the whole scriptures kind of unfold before us. I think it's why Jesus always says, whoever has ears, let him hear. Because he's saying you've got to enter in, you've got to pursue, you've got to push into this even more. Revelation chapter 21, right? You know, the Bible ends the same way it begins. When God fashioned and created mankind, I envision him, he, he, he forms uh, all that we have seen. He calls man and woman into existence and he says to them, I want you to exercise dominion over the world that I've created. I want you to rule with me. I want you to reign with me. I want you to contribute and to participate in what I have done with me as sort of these regents or representatives of my image in the world to continue what it is that I have created, what I have begun, to participate with him. That's the, that's the way it begins. And the way it ends, we know what happens, right? There's the fall. Human beings decided they didn't want to live under the rule of God, so they choose their own way. And what enters into the world at that point in time? Death. Death enters the world. Now all the things that were intended to exist forever now were met with a separation from life. A separation from life. John has a vision in Revelation, the same John that wrote John 1 and John 20, he has a vision. And he sees the new heaven and the new earth rejoined. The new creation reestablished. And he hears a voice, a loud voice. And it says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. and He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. and He will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order, the old rule, the old system has been done away with. He who sitting on the throne says, I am making everything new. This is important, so write this down. And here's what John records, starting in verse six. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus speaking from the throne. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Look what he says, to the thirsty. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost, for the spring, uh, from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Let me ask you something. How do you get to inherit this thing that God has envisioned and promised for us? Did you notice what it said? Those who are thirsty. Those who are thirsty. 
what you and I need is not to figure out how to do better with our behavior. We need something else to come in and transform what we actually long for. Every longing at its core is a longing for life. If I'm right, if I'm right, if, if what the scripture teaches is right, if Christ is life, then guess what you are longing for? You're longing for him. You're longing to be reconciled and brought back and returned to him. So think about what the resurrection actually is. The resurrection isn't a cool trick for Jesus to prove that he was God. He did that. But the resurrection is the actual reality of life returning to things that were previously dead. So what does this mean for you and for me? What does sin always do? Sin always divides, destroys, undermines, and ultimately separates us, right, from God. Which, which separates us from life, which by definition is death. This is what has happened to us. This isn't about some cosmic decision that we make at some point in time to ensure that we get the right ticket to go here. The gospel is not about you getting to heaven when you die. It is about this rule and reign of God to return, to reconcile all things unto himself. And this eternal life is not something that happens to us when we die. It is something that comes to us while we live. This is what I'm trying to get us to understand and to embrace so we can walk in this way by faith. He goes on, and this is what he says uh, in verse eight. And some of you will feel better that I'm like really preaching the gospel with this one. Because those who are cowards, who are cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, all these will inherit. Their inheritance, they will be consigned to what? This fiery lake of burning sulfur, which is what? Say it out loud. The second death. This isn't about, oh, did I do this? Did I do this? Did I do this? This is not how this is even written. To those who thirst, to those who's longing for life, this living water, he will provide it endlessly. And the word cowardly and the word unbelieving are really important in this. All of those words are actually, but the word, what it is, is this is sort of the opposite of love. For those who are governed by something different, who don't trust, who refuse to trust, who think that life is gonna be found in a whole bunch of other things, that thirst also will be quenched or actually that thirst also will be allowed to continue. The problem is it leads in a place that is separated from life and separated from life eternally so. This isn't about you getting into heaven or going to hell. This is about you learning how to receive the life that you have been intended for. It's a very different way I understand the way most of us have grown up thinking about the gospel. But this is precisely how it is taught. When Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, he doesn't say, I'll hand them a ticket. He says, I will come in and I will dine with them. Jesus came, he says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to bring life to dead places. I came to forgive sins and to reconcile people to my father. All these things, I came to establish my kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is at hand. What Jesus was doing is he was saying to us, it is never going to be the way that it was. Something new 
has occurred. This eternal kind of life comes to us as we receive it, as we learn to be acclimated to it, to respond and listen and depend. And what it does, it begins to drive out all the places where death reigns and rules in our lives until at some measure, right, we are formed to this longing of what we're going to receive and enjoy forever. Until this reunion, it's, it's all this picture, this, this coming back to what was. I mean, think about this. Genesis chapter 2, God or, uh, it talks about how God created man. And I just envision this, that God reaches his hands into the clay and he fashions out of the clay, his hands are dirty, fashions it out, the, um, the first human. You know what it says in Genesis 2, 7? It says he breathed into him the breath, the wind, the spirit of God. And it says that he became a living being. He came alive. He was animated. He was moved. He began to find his source in this that was, was breathed into him. Sin separated us from that life source. Jesus reconciles it to us. And look at what happens. He sees Mary. Mary goes back and tells the disciples, they still don't believe. They're still hiding. Jesus shows up uh, in a room with them in uh, John chapter 20. Again, this is John. I think this is really interesting. Jesus comes to them. He says, peace be with you. They're like, oh my gosh. He says to him again, peace be with you. Verse 21. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am also sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And we read this. And I think about this. Jesus said, Peace be with you. <sighs> it's kind of odd, isn't it? It's like we don't do that to one another. That's why I've been wearing masks the last couple of years, right? It's like we don't do that. So what is he doing? He breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He is reenacting, recreating, reintroducing us to what we have always been made for. What has been separated from us. And the way you get this, the way you receive this, isn't by being convinced about this. God has no problem with your doubt. He doesn't measure your faith by how certain you are about things. He measures your faith by how willing you are or what you're willing to do when you are uncertain. It's very important for us to understand. I did not understand this before I believed it. I have believed this you know, trying very intentionally for 18 years, maybe longer, but when I was articulate 18 years, and then trying to live into this. And your faith begins to, to build something in you. It builds something that you actually begin to see this as a source of life. The longings that I have in my soul today are different than the ones I had 15 years ago. Because this is what the work of the Spirit does. He transforms us. This is what the work of God is. Blaise Pascal says, so I know some of you guys are like, you're so sciencey and you're so, you know, Blaise Pascal, arguably one of the most important philosophers and mathematicians uh, in the history of the world, a uh, French uh, mathematician from the 1600s, he wrote these words. He said, the heart has reasons that reasons uh, doesn't know of. One of the other guys I've been reading a like, lot, he wrote this. He said that trying to experience the risen Christ with your rational mind is like trying to smell a rose with your ear. At some point, at some point, you're going to have 
to believe, to trust. And as long as you refuse, the thirst isn't going away, the hunger isn't going away, and you know how you're trying to get those things filled isn't working. And it perpetuates what you might call death. Because it's happening in your own soul, it's happening in your own mind, it's happening in the relationships that are important to you, it's happening in the work that you're supposed to do, it's happening. And you know what the resurrection does? It returns life to places that were previously dead. How many of you could use a little bit of that? This is what the gospel is. So what would I tell you to do? I would tell you to believe, to believe, to believe. The language that Jesus uses, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. This isn't like when your mom says to your brother, go tell John to take out the trash, and John comes down and goes, mom said go take out the trash. It's not the picture. The picture is very much subdue the earth, rule the world, or rule the earth, exercise dominion, uh, contribute. The language is participate, depend, cooperate, do it with him. A lot of us have heard the gospel presented with a question. It says, if you were to die, do you know where you would go? I want to propose a better question. What if you didn't die? What if you didn't die? Do you know what it would mean to truly live? Because if you answer that question, the first question doesn't matter. You know what Jesus said at Lazarus' tomb after he called him out? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. So I would say to believe, right? Jesus, and make no bones about it. This isn't like, oh yeah, I'll just intellectually. This is about repenting for the kingdom of God is available, returning from what has long governed your life into something that is new and fresh and that you've been made for, that you forsake one way for another. Salvation is not about getting a ticket so you can go to heaven when you die and avoid hell. But it's about you've been delivered from a dominion, a a reign, a rule of darkness, and into the kingdom of the Son. The rule of fear no longer has sway. Instead, you live under the rule of love. Salvation is about a new birth and a new human, a new creature, and a new creation. The life that we have been returned to is an eternal kind of life that is fueled by His Spirit, His breath, His wind, animating, fueling, filling your life to live out the kind of life that you have been created for from the very beginning. So here's what I would tell you to do. I would just say to believe. And you're going, Mike, can I just believe something? And the truth is you do it all the time. You know what belief is? Belief is a thought that gets weight. And guess who assigns the weight to those thoughts? You do. Because some of you believe that what you have done has forever erased any hope of you ever experiencing the kind of life that God has for you. That's a belief that you've given weight to, and guess what it does? It governs the way you participate in the world. What if the opposite were true? What if you could believe that God actually forgives you, 
that He actually came for you, that He actually extends to you the life for which you have been made for and that nothing that you have done to this point can actually threaten that? What if you gave those thoughts more weight and they became the beliefs that governed the way you see and participate in the world around you, participate in the life that's been made available to you? To believe that you've been created by God and for God with intention and purpose. To believe that God is love and the fullness of His love was demonstrated on the cross and then brought to you today. Whatever like to believe that God actually forgives you for your sin. He's not waiting on you to pay them back. How good, how, what would that be like? What if He meant that you had a worth and a value that doesn't depend on how you were treated growing up or what your parents thought about you or what anybody else thinks, that there was a worth? What if, you, what if that thought got weight in your life that actually began to change and shape the way you see and experience the world around you to participate in this eternal kind of life that's been made available? What if you trust His forgiveness? Confession wouldn't feel like a chore, trust me. We think that confession is trying to like manufacture this. Confession is a response to believing that the rule of sin and the dominion that it has is no longer over your life. To believe in his resurrection and the power that it brings, that life can be returned to all the places that you were dead. So you say, okay, what do I, what do I, what do, I do with this, Mike? I want to believe, this is what I would do, is I would go home, I'd get out my journal, and I'd write, Christ is life. And then you can say, I don't understand it. But I think I'm going to believe it. What you think is that you got to make a promise today that you'll be this way forever. Forget that. Forget that. Today, what I hope is that you would begin to get a vision, a picture for resurrection power over every circumstance in your life. And that rather than trying to make a promise of something that you're never going to do, maybe today you would trust Him just enough. For some of you, have returned and you would trust Him just enough to pray. Just enough to say, God, if you're real, if you trusted Him just enough to, 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 to offer something towards Him. Maybe you trust Him enough to consider Maybe trust him enough to consider what he has to say about life and death and heaven and hell and hope and peace. Maybe trust him enough to yield. You've been like forcing your will and your way for long enough and you realize it is not getting you where you want it. What if you trusted him enough today to yield just slightly? What if you trusted him enough to surrender? What if you trusted him enough to hope? Some of you, you've been so disappointed for so long, you've forgotten what it feels like to go, I think things could be different. You've been stuck in patterns. What, what if you trust them enough today, just, just enough to hope or to acknowledge? You've been fighting them for a long time. If you trust them just enough to acknowledge that, hey, maybe your way has merit. Maybe you are better than I thought. Or trust him enough to grieve. Some of you have just tried to put on the happy face to grin and bear it, and you're just, you're tired. It's just been hard. You just need to say, I am sad. What if you trust him enough to bring that to him? His resurrection power over your thoughts, 
Right? You know you have thoughts that if left unchecked are going to get you in trouble. True? You're going to think things about people. You're going to think things about what you deserve. We have thoughts that need life brought to these deadly places over our shame, over our fear, over our attitudes. Anybody got an attitude that feels like death most of the time? Or you live with someone who it feels like that, right? We need life brought back to these places. Maybe you trust him enough to believe that God came to demonstrate his love for you and for me that while we were stuck in these stubborn, separated, certain realities that Jesus gave his life to absorb the death that we had created and that we remain in to rescue us and to return life to every place that was previously dead. What would it be like? When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, it wasn't, he didn't mean that the end of something was simply over but rather that something new had begun. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever is convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, nope. Whoever would believe in him would not experience death, but rather would experience an eternal kind of life and be returned for the life that you have been created for. How would that feel? How would that feel if that was available to you today and tomorrow and the next day and the next? You know what? It is. The gospel is incredibly good news of life being returned to every dead place in our lives and in our world. Father, would you help us to see that? Would you help us to trust that? Would you give us faith? Father, as we kind of close our time, I ask that you would give us a picture of what it would look like for resurrection power to be brought to every circumstance and moment in our lives that what you did on the cross was the beginning, the beginning point for us to inherit the kind of life that we have been created for. So I ask you in these moments to remind us, to let us celebrate, to let us ask, pray, receive whatever we might need in this moment. Would you do that? I lift all this to the name of your son, Jesus, who is our resurrected King. It is in his name we pray. Would you stand as we close our time together?